0: Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference.
1: Hi, welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. It's hosted by Mary Shirley and me, Lisa Fine. Today's guest is Megan wife Megan is the Director of Operations and Delivery for RG Insights Lab, and that's the legal consulting arm for the law firm Ropes and Gray. The lab focuses on integrating data analytics and behavioral science to solve problems for clients in a multitude of industries. Megan joined the lab just a few months ago in the beginning of June. Before that, Megan was a senior editor of the Anti Corruption Report which for those of you who have not read their work, it's a fantastic information service. They combine up-to-date news and practical guidance for ethics and compliance professionals. Like me, Megan started in a large corporate law firm where she was a litigator for more than eight years. So with that, Megan, thank you so much for joining me. And let's start a little bit more about your background. Tell us about your law firm to journalist journey and now to your current role.
0: Thanks, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. As you said, I started a big New York law firm. Oh my God, I won't tell you how long ago, <laughs> but many years ago and did broad... You're uh, still right next to me though.
1: So she, you're still young next to me.
0: Where I was doing just broad all over the place litigation, things ranging from antitrust cases to employment law cases, to contract cases to after the financial crisis, CDO litigation, which actually led me to a second mint at a bank in Germany for six months as part of my work there. Some of my most proud work is I actually worked on a Nazi looted art, which was making its way through the circuit courts of appeal, which was really a lot of fun. And so I had this very broad all over the place litigation practice which did not in any way touch on anti-corruption or compliance. (laughs) And the connection there is the way most things go, is I was looking to make a change for a sort of slower pace of life. And a friend of mine introduced me to a friend of hers who happens to We had all gone to the same law school together, and that was Nicole Deschino, mentioned by name, and who's another wonderful luminary in the compliance space. And she was the editor-in-chief of the Anti-Corruption Report at that point in time, and they were looking to bring someone else on. And I interviewed, and Nicole and I just hit it off, both professionally, but as we've become very close friends since then. And I was waffling a little bit, and Nicole was like, do it. It's a great job. It's a really interesting area of law. Do it. Take a leap of faith. And I did. And it ended up being a just an incredible experience. And she was totally right. It's a fantastic area of law. I remember going to my first compliance conference and going, oh, this is where all the nice lawyers are. <laughs> I've been very happy to be in this space ever since. And in my work at the anti-corruption report, I got to know this team at Ropes and Gray and they launched the RNG Insights Lab about two years ago. And it, its point of view was just so aligned with my point of view, both in terms of using data to do compliance better, and but also the using behavioral insights to understand how people think and understand understand how people behave and make decisions, just really was so aligned with how I see things. And so I eventually came over here and now I'm the director of operations and delivery, which means I help make the trains run on time, but I also do compliance consulting, helping companies build and improve their compliance programs. And then I'm also helping build out what we call our efficient delivery model here, which is doing routine compliance work for companies at a price point that's a little bit more palatable than perhaps some other law firm work might be. So that's what I'm doing.
1: That sounds so interesting. So talk a little more about what the Insights Lab is. You've said words that are scary to lawyers, but uh, with the nice lawyers too, but talking a little bit about behavioral science data, talk about the, the purpose, a little more detail about that.
0: Sure. And so the lab was founded, it was founded by Zachary Coselia and Amanda Rad, who's a partner here at Ropes and Gray. And Zach had actually been at the data analytics program at Pfizer before he was here. And these sort of the theme at the lab is there has to be a better way. Is it the way that most companies do compliance? It's it's often very bare bones. It can be based on a lot of guesswork. It's often under-resourced and maybe not making the best use of the resources that it does have. And like founding principle was there has to be a better way. And the better way was to use data to actually find out what works and what doesn't work. And then also take the insights from behavioral science to understand what makes people tick and, you know, what the data to essentially use behavioral science as a tool to interpret that data, right? Data doesn't mean anything until you put it in a form that you can actually get insights from. And the behavioral science is about getting the insights out of that data. And so that a point of view of the lab.
1: And how does it work? One of the things when you say you could do it better, we have so many crossovers in ethics and compliance. So how do you work in some of the other areas that are the big, how do we make the world better, the DEI world, ESG, plenty of other acronyms, but how do you work on that from the lab standpoint?
0: Yeah, so the lab, the bread and butter is compliance, obviously, but it also does a lot of work in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion. ESG, we're actually very blessed here in that Michael Lindenberg is a partner at Ropes & Gray. He's one of the foremost attorneys in the ESG space, and so we work with him quite a bit. And then also the sort of the other CSR areas, we group that all together, but Almost all of those topics come down to getting employees, because we're talking about companies, so employees, to behave in better, in quotation marks, ways, right? More ethical ways, more inclusive way, more equitable ways. And so it's about driving those behaviors. And so taking those same tools of data and behavioral science and applying them to those other areas, it's really actually a very natural progression and then something that the lab does a decent amount to work with. And it is, it's ever expanding actually.
1: So one other question I have is with the lab, how is it complementary and then how is it different from typical law firms?
0: Sure. So I think in complimentary, it's like in a very sort of obvious way in that we work very closely with the ropes and gray attorneys and we get brought on as part of the regular legal work that ropes does for many different clients. And so I think it's very natural. A lot of law firms do this work, but it isn't necessarily what they're doing all the time. And so what we do is take stuff that some of the attorneys might've been doing anyway and bring a little bit more expertise and experience to it or, and a different point of view because we have a multidisciplinary team. It's not all lawyers. I have the journalism backgrounds. We have a staff cultural psychologist, Caitlin Handron, who's one of my, my favorite people at the firm here. And that brings some different perspectives. We're also bringing on, we have, data analytics specialists and bringing on more. And we also have Wei Chen now who works at the lab. She started in the same day as me. So who brings that, Wei has a very particular, no one else has the experience that Wei has. So it's very particular. <laughs> and so like it, that's the complementary part. And they'll also, but also the ways that it's different is that we have these different skill sets and this different point of view and these different experiences that are a little outside of the general law firm toolkit if you were, if, as, you ha- as it may be.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because when I think about some of the law firm, you alluded to it earlier, sometimes the price point can be very high for our I'm not yet to meet a ethics and compliance leader who says, I have too many resources. What can I do with them? Correct. So if you meet that person at really excited to hear. How I have they're, questions. They're, I have questions, and I'm also a little worried about their program, but right. <laughs> on the other hand, I think that it's, I think that the idea of having different approaches about how to build and how to handle product projects, I think probably is also a, a one of the unique differentiators both in your staffing and as well in what you're doing. Yeah, it
0: definitely is. And it's something that we're very conscious of is building out offerings that can meet companies where they are because it's just not feasible for most companies to pay partner rates are high. They are, they're providing an incredible service. They have incredible skills, but it's, I remember I sometimes I'll say to an artisan or something and they'll be charging something for a beautiful work of art. I'll be like, I am not saying you're not worth that amount of money. I'm saying I can't afford it. But those are two different things. And- (laughs) Being conscious of that and understanding that not everyone can afford exactly that. And that some things may, some processes, some requirements may not necessitate those sort of fees either. And building out things that are more specific for that is something that we're conscious of and we're interested in doing more of and we're always thinking about. But it's that, and one of the things, again, one of the founding principles of is. Driving efficiency, right? When we talk about using these tools of analytics to here, it's because you want an efficient product, right? Is that you want to be achieving the goals of a compliance pro- program as efficiently as possible. Not just throwing every resource you have in the book, but doing, having everything be fit for purpose and efficient. And so that's something that we're always conscious of for sure.
1: I think that's really just generally important because I think one of the challenges too, when I've been in law firms like you have, and I've been on this side now for a lot longer. And sometimes it's, I don't need to know the whole landscape of every single thing that's happened. I need you to understand my company, what we're doing, what our immediate problem is, and how am I going to execute on that? How are we going to be successful? And it's great that you can tell me ad nauseum about changes or the critical things in the, in the DOJ's guidance, but I need to know how do I get this out to people so that they don't make bad decisions and they're empowered to make ethical decisions. And this is how my company works. And I think it's a, an interesting approach. And the reason I also wanted to bring that up is because, and this is one of the things I'm really interested in, because I am one of the people who went to law school to avoid math. Um, I think there are a lot of us and that's, I would think, the, all the nice people we see at comply, ethics and compliance conferences, I think a lot of us either hate math or they're the people that are trying to help us use it better. But today, we all know that data and analytics are a huge part of what we are doing, what we need to do, and you know how to tell stories. The flip side is there's data to prove almost anything. How do we get ourselves comfortable with it and effectively start utilizing it you know, in programs?
0: Yeah, i go back to, I think, back when I was Working at the anti-corruption report, I interviewed, but she was a source for a story I was writing about measuring compliance. It's up on the website still if anyone's interested and wants to go to the anti-corruption report and read it. It's still there. But and but, she said something that I thought was like profound. She said it's flippantly, but she said, it's just how many and how much. That's what measuring compliance is. Asking how many and how much and where. And so I think people get very frightened by like data, analytics. It sounds like this like very foreign language, but we all know how to count. We all know how to look at a map. We all know how to tell the difference between February and December and see if there's a difference in the numbers there. That's really all that it is. It's looking for patterns, right? And that's looking for patterns. And we all know how to do that. And the math part might be a little scary and that's fair and fine, but guess what? you don't have to do it. There are other people that could do it for you. There are programs, computer programs that could do it for you. Like you don't have to do the math. There are other people and other things that can help you do the math efficiently, like not necessarily at a great expense, right? Like I bet everyone has Excel on their computers already. That's a powerful tool. And so just keeping track of how many and how much and when and where, that's pretty much all it is. And it doesn't have to be something that people are really afraid of, I don't think. Does that answer your question? I feel like there was a second part to your question that I- There have. is
1: because what you're saying, it answers part of the question because don't even get me started on trying to figure out certain Excel formulas. I'm very proud of myself. Like when I pull off a VLOOKUP, I'm like, this is- your. but I think the other part of the question too is how do we use the data and the how much or the counting or even that to tell our stories? How can we do that? Especially the other part of it is that you can eventually find a way to count stuff however you want. That's one of our problems dealing with people all the time. So they have creative interpretations of things.
0: Yeah, I think, I think you can be choosy about what data you use, but at the same time, we're you're dealing with reality. You're not making up numbers, right? You can't make the number of, travel and entertainment expenses in December be different. It is what it is. And it is what it is going to be different than February. And so that tells a story there, right? About what happens in February versus December, what people are actually doing. And the storytelling part is actually, I think this is, this is where it's easy for lawyers or storytellers, particularly litigators, right? People who write briefs, like they know how to do this. And all data is evidence. It all is something to cite to, to tell your story. And so I think that is something that comes pretty naturally to people in this space, but it is so important is that numbers on a page don't mean anything. It's the narrative behind them that has meaning, has insight and has value, is connecting the dots between the how many, how much, where, and when. You have to pull them all together. They don't have meaning individually. Each individual data point is nothing. The story is in drawing them together, finding the pattern, seeing how they relate to each other and how they change over time. That's the narrative there. And I think all humans, not just lawyers, are storytellers. We love stories. We love metaphors. We love simile. We love all of those things. And I think that it comes naturally to us to tell the story. I think the key is to lean into it, to not just be, let's just five, (laughs) like the answer is five. (laughs) <laughs> no, tell me what that means, interpret it and not be afraid to lean into that narrative. And also to go to your employees and have them help you tell that story. You can gather the data, but you might need help understanding what it means. And you might be like, wow, this really spiked in March. I Wasn't expecting that. And then get on the phone and say, hey, what happened? What's going on behind here in March? And so there's that sort of human element of figuring out what the story is around the data, but you'd never know to go ask this question if you hadn't gathered the data. That's the connection there. And that's why you have to have both and why both are important.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You just made me think of a little bit when it comes to uh, speak up or hotline reports, because the story to that is, I was just talking about this today, where on the one hand, when you get a spike on certain things or you're thinking, wait a minute, some people may say, okay, this is a problem because suddenly do we have more problems on the other hand we recently have a lot of in, in one area wait they actually are starting to trust us so they're reaching out so it wasn't even how I was like people are I like, it's good news bad news the good news is people are raising their concerns with us directly because they're trusting us the other side of that is high person I've talked to four times in the last two weeks now we actually have to deal with the problem and Nobody, I'm mentioning this because people that I worked with aren't saying, let's not do this, but it's interesting when you, that's one of our first languages or mine in ethics and compliance is related to reports and speaking up. And then to talk about it in all those other lenses, it really is an interesting thing when you have, when is an uptick good? And it can be more than one thing.
0: I actually similarly just had a conversation with an associate who in a risk assessment was, I put put I there's a problem with the culture because there's a lot of complaints in Asia. And I'm like, I don't, think you can draw that conclusion, right? That's not, one doesn't necessarily come from the other. And in fact, it could be a really positive thing for the culture if all of a sudden there's a lot of complaints in Asia. Did you just do a training? Did they? Did you just post the hotline number? And again, that's where you have to figure out what the story is around right. the number. That's the, you have to figure out what the narrative is and that the number itself is meaningless unless you understand what's going on around it. But then the next level is to think about, okay, how can I gather other data that will help me interpret this spike. And so it would be to take your hotline data and then look also at your training data, right? Let's look at what happens at the hotline. We did a training on this date. What happened to hotline reports after and see if there's a correlation, right? And those are both easy data points that you probably have available to you. You can look at your calendar and know when the training happened, right? And you can look at the hotline reports. They're both data points, but together they tell a much more powerful story about the efficacy of brain So that's what it is to start thinking about what other data points you could pull in that then together can synergize into a fuller story.
1: It, it, I mean, there's so many different ways to look at some of that data. I could talk about that forever, but I find it also interesting because you'll get the upset people who suddenly five people will call in one day about one particular location, whether legitimate or not. And they're saying, we had a spike here today because I can't tell you exactly what happened. There are a lot of unhappy people related to an incident. And that's interesting too. All of it is. I think it's great. And one other thing about that is we were talking a little bit about speaking up or hotline, but same with policies and understanding. How can you use that? Can you use the data that way as well? What do you think is most effective?
0: Sure. Policies are hard and policies are interesting because it was, it's, you were talking about resources before and with your, you were talking about when getting from a law firm and you're like, I don't need all the background. <laughs> Tell me what I need to do. And a lot of policies are exactly the opposite. Uh, policies are written to make people little FC, FCPA lawyers. And are, like, that's what they're, I think with the policy, it's maybe, I don't know how much you can get some data around your policies for sure. You can get click through rates. You can figure out what people are checking it and that kind of thing. But I think you have to think about your policy and your training as A combined thing, right? Is that that your policy probably is meaningless outside of the training. No one's looking at your policy just to read it for fun, right? The way you socialize it, the way the communications that you have, the trainings that you have on it, that's where people are actually going to learn what your policy says, and then that's where you're looking for rich data around your training in terms of retention, in terms of behavior change, and that those are the kind of things you're going to be looking for in terms of your policy. Because it's, sure, you can see how many people click through on the policy, but it's not going to tell you very much, I don't think.
1: Yeah, I think one of the most important things that we coming out of that at any level is the, you're not expected to be an expert on this policy. But you are expected to be an expert on knowing if something may be wrong, like an issue spotter. I think then encouraging people on that thing, you, you, especially if you're in a senior role. If you're in a senior role, you are expected to understand certain things are right and wrong regardless. And your accountability is, it may be higher because by virtue of your manager, your people manager, you are signing off on expense reports. You are, once you're doing that, you're not expected to know everything about everything, but you are supposed to know if something looks really shady to not sign off on it, to ask some questions.
0: Yeah, and it's something we really believe in at the lab is that policies should be operational documents. They should tell you what you need to do. They don't need to tell you the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act came into effect in 1970. No, no one cares. No one cares. Tell me what I have to do. What do (laughs) I have to, what forms do I have to fill out? When, what red flags do I have to look for? What, who should I call if there's a problem? Like it should be a very action focused document and not a legal document.
1: So I think one of the other things, I think we've talked a bit about how we can use our data and analytics to move product. But the other thing I was just interested having just come back into a law firm world, albeit in a very different role, your role is different, but have you seen after leaving the law firm world and coming back and evolution in the practice and for women, for moms post COVID, it's a whole new world.
0: Yeah, it's very different. I have to say. And um, so I left, Law firm life in 2015, and was at the anti-corruption report for almost seven years, and came back in 2022. And yeah, the world has changed a lot. It's hard to tease apart how much of that is time passing, how much of that is from new, a new generation coming up. I was, I'm at the cusp of being like the oldest possible millennial, and now the millennials are firmly like in. partnership ranks uh, which is really a fascinating thing it has been really fascinating to be back at a law firm and be like who is this person and oh it's
1: a partner they were so young and they used to know so serious and now
0: I'm like I I know it's a surprise it's a surprise (laughs) and but I think that has led. there's like a generational cultural change that's happened but then of course I think the pandemic just upended a lot of things and there's been a lot there's a lot of changes with Regards to formality, with regards to flexibility, and all those things. I think, honestly, I, in my from my perspective, I think it's all to the good. I think a lot of the rigidity and formality that was in law firms was fairly patriarchal and to the detriment of women. And shedding that skin is not a bad thing. I've been so impressed with the younger associates that I've met here, and that they're much more willing to speak up to say when they feel like. They don't feel like they're being treated in the right way, or they feel like they are also just to say share their opinions and feel like their opinions matter in a way that I certainly would not have felt as a, a first or second year associate. And that's been a hugely pleasant surprise, I have to say. I think there's a fair amount of all of these whippersnappers, so you don't know their place. I'm not like that at all. I think it's lovely. I love seeing it, actually. And I think that it also benefits all of us. It's I'm a mom now. I've returned to a law firm life as a mom. And that additional flexibility of working from home several days a week, being able to take calls from home, being able to take calls with people with the understanding that you're at home. And that means that there's a dog and a cat and three kids and everyone knows that's happening is also really helpful. You don't feel like this sort of like, I have to hide the fact that I'm at home. No, everyone's. And I think that's really beneficial to not just women, but to all people with young children, I think makes a big difference. And so it's been actually a pleasant surprise to see those changes. And I think it's multifaceted and multifactored from where it comes from. But I think all to the good, and I hope to see more of it, honestly.
1: I think it's really important. I also think being somebody who doesn't have kids, I think the respect, what I had seen in the law firms in my day was was also the almost a different, felt well, obligated, or I did. I don't have kids. I should be working more hours. I should be here. And people would, it was almost expected in a way that may not be right, but, but I always work to make sure that I still have my hobbies are valuable. Other things, but you almost felt like a little bit of imposter about it. I like now, at least I'm seeing this is that people's lives are valued for whatever they are. And it's not perfect, but I definitely remember people being like, if you don't have children, why do you need to go home? It's Why do I want to be here? I remember once saying to somebody like, you're single. If I don't ever leave the office, I'm never going to be able to do anything again in my life now. And I just think it's really, I think... There have been lots of challenges in, for the pandemic, and there are lots of challenges, but I like to see, particularly like women now just walk in, they own the room. I don't think I would have felt. I was, I'm Gen X, so we basically really got stuck in the middle of all of it. We we didn't get some of the opportunities of the boomers, and now we're learning how we could have done it from the millennials. So yes. it's the experience, but I find that also a fascinating part about it, and I see more and more of it right now, and I also see men feeling more comfortable.
0: Yes, it's true. I've been also surprised. Like, that's why I say parents, right? It's like, I had like a senior associate be like, sorry, parental leave's coming up. And that's it, peace out. And I was like, good. I'm so glad. Enjoy your time with the baby. That's great. And then also to your point, I think it's also, I feel like previously there was a lot of resentment actually that was back and forth between people that did have families and people who did not have families, where each felt like the other was getting some sort of better deal. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I think to erode that and understand that everyone has a personal life, everyone has a home that they live in, has other things going on and UPS at the door, like everyone can agree that that happens for everyone. It has really leveled the playing field and eroded some of that resentment, which I think is again, all to the good, I think. And so it's it benefits everyone, I think. Not just mothers, not just parents, but everyone, I think, is happier for it.
1: Yeah, I think that's true too. So I really just appreciate you taking the time. It sounds really great, the stuff that you're doing now. And I have to, I can give a plug for that, but also the anti-corruption report is I've been a really great tool. And I always enjoy when I get to read things from it. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And I hope everybody has a great day.
0: Thank you. It's been so great to be with you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance.
1: We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.